Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Coming to you um, in some sort of like quarantine isolation. I don't know which is exactly the right term. We're not sick, but we are um, staying out of interacting with people. And Anna, my daughter, who you've heard briefly on the podcast, is not in her quarantine situation in the same state that I'm in. I'm on one coast, she's on the other. So for this Q&A episode, I, because I miss her a lot, I asked her if she would serve as the questioner. So she went through the questions that you sent me on Twitter, and she's going to ask some of them. She's got some follow-up questions. Uh, really, nobody knows me better than Anna does. She's uh-huh. a great writer. Uh, she's 20 years old and is... Hi, Anna. Hi. It's it's an honor to be here. Wait, we're this is an we're doing earnest. We're not gonna we're not doing. Sort of <laughs> well, I was, I was doing sarcastic then um, humble. No, yeah, we're not doing sort of like the oh great to be here, Dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? We instead it's like no, great to be here. This will be fun. Like let's oh, but you're saying little... I wasn't being earnest enough. Okay, it's yeah. it's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Is that better? But, yeah, I mean you don't even have to really <laughs> thank me. I'm your father. <laughs> It's more like it's nice to be participating in this for people who are home also in quarantine. I'm sorry. I listen, I listen to too many snarky podcasts. Right. Uh, mine's not snark. When you're pot, I'm not a – you're the comedian person. I'm, I'm not doing a snark. I don't do a snarky podcast. You don't do a snarky podcast. Hi, Boo. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Did you have a good day today? I did. Did you? Yes. It's nice that we got to FaceTime a little bit, and it's great that we're doing this. Okay, everybody. I really do appreciate that you sent questions in. I think we'll probably keep this at a tight 40 minutes or so. And um, I'm, I'm not sure the way in which I'm going to do podcasts during this. I'll certainly interview some people. And um, I'm open to putting up more sort of shorter pods that maybe speak to what I'm thinking about or speak to uh, what you guys are thinking about. So feel free to email me questions to themomentbk at gmail.com. Hit me on Twitter if you want, at Brian Koppelman, um, and I will do my best to engage so that we all have a sense of community. I want to say uh, one other thing before we start, which is on Twitter, I've been doing a thing, uh, and I know you've seen it, though I don't think you've participated and sent one yet. Well, um, I, you know what? I don't drink coffee. It's true. You don't. You could fake it. Um, you could do it with, with hot cocoa or tea, but- I can hold uh, up a mug. You can hold a mug. I've been wanting to share. I feel like we're all in our silos and I've been wanting to connect. So as some of you know, I call the first coffee of the day, the Royale, because it's so awesome. It deserved its own name. And I've been posting pictures of me drinking the Royale. And then uh, so many of you have been posting pictures also. And someone suggested that I make a mug with a silly picture of me on it. And someone else designed the mug, just people who are in our community uh, on Twitter designed a mug. And so we're making them and giving the money to the Food Bank of New York. So if you go to theroyalebk.com, theroyalebk.com, you can order a great Royale mug and know that the money goes to all the profits go to the Food Bank of New York. Okay, boo. Ask me the first question. 
Um, with names or without names? Um, on Twitter, I think people are fine if you say their names. Okay. Um, this is just a handle, so I actually don't know their name. But what's their favorite? What's your favorite album of all time? Ooh, I lo- what, what was their handle? Um, at feet des n e i g e s. Awesome. Well, uh, I love your handle. I don't understand what it is yet, but, <laughs> but you know that you asked the question. Well, I think about this. I think about this album question many different ways because there's albums that you think are the best album of all time. Then there are the albums that have accompanied you for a long, long time that feel like they're uh, a part of your world. Mm. And I'd say my favorite album shifts. Like we know we're going to be talking about Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, Bruce, Jason Isbell, R.E.M., the whole steady Amy Mann in this conversation of favorite albums. For Certainly albums by each of those people have been my very favorite album for periods of time. Um, a sneaky favorite album of all time is Counting Crows, August and Everything After. It's one we listened to in the car, I'd say, a ton growing up, Anna. Anna, would you say the most listened to albums in, growing up in the car were Bruce, uh, the album with Jungle and Anna, Born to Run, Counting Crows, Lou Reed's New York album, and then probably Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. Yeah, we also, I'm trying to think of the name of the song, which I should really know, but we listened to that one Guns, Guns and Roses song very often. Oh, yeah. Well, we definitely listened to Appetite for Destruction a lot. And um, and we listened to Southeastern, I would say, a ton. Don't, That's do like think? when I was older, though, because when I think about driving in the car with you, like I definitely think... Um, Counting Crows, R.E.M. Yes, for sure. Uh, The Sequestered in Memphis song. Yeah, the Hold Steady, Sequestered in Memphis. Well, that album, Stay Positive. Yes, exactly right. I think that album more than any other album was what you would play in the car. Yeah, we played the Hold Steady, Stay Positive for like a year and a half straight, I think, in the car. And maybe that was like right when I was aware of music. Yeah, it might have been. That makes sense. Uh, but I think if I have to pick one album and say, okay, well, Graceland would be in the conversation for me. Paul Simon's Graceland album, I uh, would definitely be in the conversation. But I think, I think Blood on the Tracks, uh, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks is probably, um, if I had to just pick one album that I couldn't live without for today, I'm going to say Blood on the Tracks. Oh, I like that as a starting off kind of a question. Why Blood on the Tracks? Because it's um, it's one of the last albums where Bob sang in a way that he that connects to the guy that he was when he started. You know, Bob would sort of shift identities, and Blood on the Tracks has it's right before the period of albums that were Christian albums. I love those albums, though mm-hmm. they sh- represented a shift in the way he thought and wrote. Blood on the Tracks, incredibly personal. It's an album about his divorce. It's incredibly poetic. So it doesn't, um, it's it's not just sort of a linear goodbye to Sarah, who was Jacob's mom and and was Bob's wife, Mm -hmm. but it's an album that has uh, anger at the person he's singing to, anger at himself, uh, yearning for what once was, yearning for new connections. And, uh, it's uh, 
got a writing style where the melodies are every melody on that album is just a total knockout just crushes you and lyrically um it grows with you so that the way i listened to that album in college and the way i listen to it now lyrically it it shifts and i always find something new in the way there's uh, a rhyme that happens or an illusion that I pick up on or um, literally just the way he sings a note. And so mm. I don't ever get bored of it. I'm, I'm always happy if it's playing and, um, and it's one of the best albums of all time. So it fulfills a lot of things. I mean, on another day, I could definitely say a, a, a different record, but for now, Let's land on uh, Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. Okay, next question. Uh, so it's a related question by Tom Shipley, which is, have you ever altered a script to account for finding the perfect song for an episode or film? We don't alter the script. We, the, so the songs on in, in Billions in particular, David and I view... David Levine, my creative partner, and I, your Uncle Bert, um, Anna, we uh, view the music as an incredibly important tool in telling our stories. And we will, often the songs come in when you're writing the script. So if you look at the, if we look at the episode Chicken Town, which opens with the Springsteen song from Atla uh, Atlantic City from Nebraska, uh, with the first line of which is, uh, well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. And the camera is showing, Neil Berger directed the episode and he shot these incredible shots of this chicken coop and this guy going through this chicken coop. And those ideas showed up at one time. We were talking about this idea we had having to do with um, a business scam about the chicken business. And as soon as that was said in the writer's room, um, I said to Dave, I looked at Dave and I was like, they blew up the chicken man. And he's like, oh my God, we got to try to do that. And so right away, the song and the idea for the episode came together. And I remember saying to the writer of that episode, start the episode with Atlantic City. And then, so from there you go, well, then Dollar Bill sings a part of that song. If we didn't have that song, Dollar Bill's not singing. So those things go together, but, but we're never sort of have a script that's there and then think of a song and then make changes. It's more like each thing. The song has to serve the story, and the songs kind of come out of the story. Once we're editing, we might make an editing change in the rhythm of the way a scene's cut to fit a song, or we might adjust the score to fit the way that it's edited. But um, I, a lot of that is an instinctive process, and I would say it's probably my favorite part of doing this stuff is um those moments when the perfect song and the perfect story beat come together hmm. but you've never been like listening to a song and then been like oh i want to write a story about this song or like a oh no like yeah people ask me that sometimes that's a great way to ask it um no like i remember writing an episode that people really love um golden frog time episode 211 which a lot of people think is the best episode and when we broke that story, we didn't have even the losers, which plays throughout the episode. But as soon as we were writing the outline, 
and thought about what that was about. So I play music when I write all the time. Dave sometimes does, but I always have music going on. My, I mean, Anna, you've seen me with my headphones. You're like, you'll see me on our couch, right? When you're home. Just blasting music, um, yeah. Just blasting music as I'm writing. And so often I'll try to find music that that fits the, that that fits the mood I'm in when I'm writing those scenes. And as I'm searching around for that, I'm kind of finding the rhythm of I'm gonna put the di- the rhythm of the dialogue at the same mm. time. It all connects. So I remember writing a scene for that episode and playing that Tom Petty and finding that song and saying something to Dave. Dave sings it, and then suddenly that song plays throughout. But it's an organic. That part of the process is really organic, and um, I can't really write until I find the music I want accompanying me. That doesn't always make it into the script. Most of the time, maybe maybe it doesn't, but somehow it informs the script what I'm listening to. And I guess sometimes I can write without music, but 85% of the time I have something playing when I'm writing. It'd be cool to make a playlist for each episode. You mean like what I was listening to when I was writing? Yeah. Oh, I could totally do that. Yeah, it's um, weird sometimes what I'm listening to. I, um, but yeah, I could totally do that. There are playlists for every song in Billions, though. If you go to Spotify, you can find like Billions seasons one, two, three, and four playlists that Showtime put up that, that have every song from the season. Well, I have a more, uh, like, I guess, timely question, but it's from Petri Friedman, and it's essentially asking if you have any ideas of how um, the Billions characters or billionaires would respond to Corona. I do have thoughts on this. I've spoken, as part of my research, but I've spoken to some people who are billionaires or the kind of people similar to the people in the show you know human beings are human beings and and everyone's trying to protect their family and think about the ramifications maybe the the sort of business titans are are balancing different equities but uh as far as the characters in the show yeah a lot of people have asked me like would axe be shorting the market and of course he would have figured out this play ahead of time like so people have asked me if I shorted the market. First of all, I wouldn't even know how to do that myself. Like I understand it because of the show, but I wouldn't know how to do it. And I certainly wouldn't take that chance. Like I am not an investor, nor am I a billionaire. I just write about them. I did think this was going to be a big deal. I was pretty aware early on. My whole family, including Anna, have apologized for making fun of me as I was. Well, it was. Candy. It was really bad because I literally was like, this is so stupid, blah, blah, and then you just sent me right back that Atlantic article that was like, we're all going to get corona. Um, but the truth is, yeah, you know, like half, more than half the billion season is shot, but some of the season isn't shot. We're going to finish when we can all go back to work. So I don't really want to talk about how I think the characters would necessarily react to a market crash like this in this situation in That's case really we hard. decide to write something. Even though we've written um, most of those episodes but i think look this is a scary time for everybody and it's a time of taking taking stock not like the stock market and i actually don't really think any reaction that anyone has is fair uh, as long as you're not hurting anyone else so you can't i don't think it's fair to say i'm going to still go out and party like those uh idiot kids in in south beach but I want everyone to still be kind to ourselves, to themselves. And don't put pressure on yourself that you have to 
perform, produce pages or do some kind of work or like be really productive or be brave. Like all you have to do right now is breathe, center yourself, adjust to the new real and um, try to do what won't harm anybody. And I think that that's what most of the characters on the show would be thinking about. Uh, Wags would be thinking about how to still, uh, you know, get his party on. But even Wags would do it in a way that would increase the chances of him or anyone else getting uh, COVID-19. Um, on that topic, you got a lot of questions asking if you have any tips for like being creative during this time or taking creativity one step at a time. With everything happening, a lot of people feeling overwhelmed. Do you have any advice for feeling yes, overwhelmed? Sure. Yes. Um, and can I just say, as I've said to Sammy on here, it can't have always been easy being my kid and having to hear, like during a time like this, as I'm telling everyone else to be kind, me coming up to you and being like, so what are you writing? What are you thinking about doing? <laughs> are you doing morning pages? Are you journaling? <laughs> I, I like being your kid. Yes, but you got to admit, sometimes you did chafe at that stuff. Yeah, well, of course. Um, but, uh, but I do mean it all, right? But, I mean, I do say, like, whatever I'm about to say now, I do actually impart in our own world, wouldn't you think? Don't you think? Are you going to tell people to do 45 minutes of cardio? Well, and morning pages. And morning pages, I am. Yes. Yes. Uh, um. Yeah, I think that the most valuable thing to, to get your thoughts together, look, when I say don't put pressure on yourself, even just that question, how can I be more creative? I can hear the I can hear the desire to be push the panic of the world away and shift it to an anxiety about am I doing enough work? The truth is you can feel all of it. And you should set realistic goals for yourself. This is what I'm doing. What I'm doing is still trying to do my meditation twice a day, still trying to do my morning pages, and just trying to carve out a little bit of time where I can move forward on my creative projects. And that's all any of us can be doing. Yes, suddenly you have eight hours that you are free that weren't free. And suddenly you find yourself maybe watching television or fucking around on Netflix and you feel like, oh, I'm such a loser. Why am I not doing anything? Mm. Well, don't think you have to fill all eight hours. Nobody writes for eight hours, but find a way, whatever your most productive time is. For me, it's early in the morning. Do a half hour, do 45 minutes, do an hour, and definitely find a way to do some kind of exercise because exercise frees you of eggs. It's one of the greatest natural anti-anxiety medicines. So I try really hard to I exercise today for an hour. I try really hard to do exercise every day. I try really hard to do some journaling and a little bit of uh, creative work. I would say don't be on Twitter all day long. Carve the time to do the work that you love, that, that makes you feel most alive for a certain part of the day, and then get your news fix and then put that aside. Like today, uh, I'm, Anna and I are doing this on Tuesday night. Today, the CDC, the president, briefed twice. I did not watch the first briefing. Because I was in the flow of my day and I didn't want to get taken down by that. I did watch the second briefing because it was later in the afternoon. I had already exercised. I was feeling all right. And I did it then. I had already done my writing too. I had already sent documents out. So I got that stuff out of the way first and then concentrated on 
the Trump of it all. Um, I have another writing question, which is what are your favorite screenplays as like good examples for format? Not just in structure or characters, but in like using the actual screenplay. Well, I think that um, William Goldman scripts are very sturdy. So if you look at Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, it's still a kind of prime example of the way a screenplay can work. Or Marathon Man is another one that just has a motor. One thing that I've been talking about lately to people in, in real life who asked me to read stuff is that I find it's useful for when a script has a motor, a story that's dragging you through, a, a kind of central question that's asked mm. of the character toward the beginning that pulls the character and you through to a c- conclusion. And I think Marathon Man sets that up really well by William Goldman. I think Michael Clayton by Tony Gilroy is another modern, perfect example of what I'm talking about. And I think David Mamet's script for uh, House of Games is excellent in that it's got a rhythm, a mood, a tone, a lot of surprises. Um, But again, it sets up a question you don't even really realize when you're watching House of Games when the plot has started. But then as you're going, you're trying to make some guesses and it's flowing. I'd say also, don't just read the script. I... This is what I advise. I advise you to read the script, then watch the movie, and then read the script again. Um, because you will you will then understand the, the, the technique. You'll sort of get underneath it. Read the script one time through without trying to concentrate on how it works. Then watch the movie. You'll be thinking of moments in the script. Then go back to the script and, and try to maybe take it apart. So I, I, I think those are three useful useful screenplays. Uh, to read, and there, there, uh, two of those, um, Mar- Marathon Man, Butch Cassidy, and House of Games are all screenplays that I read before Dave and I wrote Rounders. And I'd say I also read a couple of Quentin scripts. I hadn't read a ton of scripts. Levine had read a lot of, of screenplays. I'd probably read ten total screenplays before. Uh, we, but, but I'd read the House of Games script many times over and over and over again because I loved the way the words danced on the page. I love trying to understand the rhythm of it. I love trying to understand what tactics he was using to engage us in the story. And I also loved watching the movie over and over again. And um, so, yeah, I would suggest those things. I like another question that I got about, um, screenplay writing and you is like when you look back at old movies that you made do you ever like see parts of what you were going through or like personal things that you figured out in the script or even like environmental factors that affected you yes I think that um you can't help when you're a writer I mean Anna you must feel this on all the stuff that you write even whether you're writing uh, sketch stuff or jokes or essays, like what you're dealing with kind of comes in or what you're observing or the mood of the time, I think, don't you think? Oh, definitely. And, and so, yeah, if I go back, look, Dave and I were 30 year old guys caught between 
trying to like do something responsible, supposedly respectable, what like the world would tell you to do. David had just gotten married. Mom and I just had your brother. And I had gone to law school at night and was working as, as an executive. And the central question for Matt Damon's character in Rounders is like, do you chase a dream or do you do the, the supposedly responsible thing? Now, mm. we weren't consciously mirroring our central question, but we were living this central question. And so it made sense to imbue the character with the central question. And although the character is nothing like the two of us in, in all sorts of ways, uh, the... And and neither of us were gambling addict, and neither of us, and I don't think the character's a gambling addict either, but neither of us were being told not to go play cards. Neither of us were being told not to engage in that way. But we were certainly young-ish guys trying to decide if we really had what it took to chase what seemed like an impossible dream based on a feeling that we could do it and that we didn't want to live regular lives. We wanted to try to live um, a, a life where we survived by our wits and our imaginations. And that's what Mike McDermott is trying to do in Rounders. And I mm -hmm. think you can go through many of the works. As you know, Solitary Man was inspired by a very personal thing. I won't go into exactly what it was, but I saw certain events happen. They made me angry. And that movie has a ton of me and you and mom and uh, people who are tangential to our lives. And Sam. In it. They're, Sammy, your brother. And, yeah. and, and, uh, and then everyone's a composite. It's no one directly. But all sorts of issues that I noticed playing out play out in that movie. Then you have a job as an artist to make it, uh, um, to, to in making a fictional construct, you have to make that thing come to life in its own fictional world. So I'm not trying to tell the real life story in Solitary Man. I'm trying to tell the story of Ben Kalman, that character, interacting with those people. And like when Ben Kalman goes up to that college, none of that is based on anything real. What it was, but, but it was based on what I thought the character, you know, the, the person I saw in the world who sort of inspired that character. I wondered if he was in that situation, what he would act like and be like. And then I just put a ton of stuff from our from from what I was feeling, witnessing, uh, interacting with, how the world would treat people like that. And so what happens when you're writing something like that is everywhere you go, you are picking up on something. It's not even conscious. You're not going like, oh, let me notice how this waiter is interacting with this man in the black suit. It's more just like your artist's brain is noticing it. And as you notice it, you're filing it away in your subconscious. And it it has no choice but to come out when you're making the work. In fact, Anna, tonight's a perfect time for you to watch Solitary Man for the first time. I was just time. thinking that. I really should. You and Spencer will love it. Okay, that's what we'll it, do. Man. Yeah, go uh, watch it. We were supposed to do some video game, but this is you know, much more high-end. Spencer will love it. I predict he will love it. And um, also, if you're listening to this and you're a podcast listener, fan, 
which if you're listening to like my Q&A episode, I'm going to assume that you're, this isn't the first time you're listening to the moment. If you are, by the way, this is the moment I'm Brian, with Brian Koppelman, <laughs> and I'm Brian Koppelman. But uh, I would say uh, go watch Solitary Man. It is, I think, in many ways, like the purest distillation before billions of what Dave and I do and what I do since I wrote the script. David and I directed it. And uh, I, if you do watch it and want to give me your thoughts, please uh, give me your thoughts on on Twitter. And in a lot of ways, it's uh, the work I'm uh, most proud of. And probably because it has so much of my heart and soul into it and so much of the world I was interacting with when I was writing it and when we were making it. It sounds like there are like very central um, truths or driving factors that are mirrored in the movies in your real life, but it's not you know the plot or the people. It's like this truth you're trying to show. Boy, that's perfectly said. You must have been raised by some really interesting, smart people <laughs> to have... No, yeah, it. Um, that's exactly right. It it it's it's almost like suffused with all that stuff, even if the plot and characters are fictionalized. Exactly right. Very like Tim O'Brien things they carried. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then, so another person asked if there's an unwritten rule about when you're allowed to admit like a creative project didn't work. Um, and they mentioned your recent conversations about Runner Runner. Um, like at what point so, in yeah, time? Generally, yeah, generally, I think generally it's bad form to like talk about because like all these other people collaborated with you, uh, financier paid for it. On the other hand, on the other hand, I feel like I have an obligation to be truthful to the people I interact with. You know, I do feel like I have, a, as you know, Boo, I have, I feel I have a real relationship with people who are along for the ride with me on Twitter and on this podcast and mm -hmm. everywhere else that I'm interacting. And so part of that means I'm going to be truthful about these um, experiences, especially when on that one, when the movie came out, I'm, the poker press wanted to interview me and I wouldn't do interviews with the poker press because even at the time I knew the movie was bad. I knew it wasn't going to work. And I didn't want to have to go out there and sell and lie to this audience, the poker audience, the poker, you know, poker movie fans. I didn't want to lie to them. And because that experience was so personally bad for me, too, uh, what people are asking about is those these tweet storms I did called Hollywood Gold, where I told a bunch of stories about that movie and some other stuff. And that one I now I shouldn't name names. I was wrong, I think, to name uh, to uh, very clearly identify a coworker on that project. I shouldn't have done that. It's, it's be, even if I felt that person acted in bad faith, I think I should have been bigger than mentioning that person's name. That said, the experience was so unpleasant. The movie came out so badly that, and I felt there were real lessons to pull from it for people. I mean, that's the reason to do it, right? Is that there are lessons I can pull from these experiences that might help somebody else if they're going through the same thing. And so, yeah, at a certain point, I think that's fair. But, I, but I'll also say that's the only experience of a movie that we made that I would talk about in that way. Mostly, even if movies didn't quite work, there were enough positives in the, in the making of it, in the collaboration, that I have mostly really positive feelings. I mean, getting to do what I do for a living is an absurd 
an absurdly uh, uh, glorious kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that one of the things I tried to say to both you and your brother growing up was like, try to find a way that the work that you do comes from a place where you feel the most alive because then the work won't feel like, uh, like work really, even when you're working really hard. And so mostly that's how I felt about it through the years. Runner runner was a particularly, uh, disgusting experience. Mm. Um, on like a more technical level, somebody mentioned that like the photography on billions feels very deliberate and wanted to know how much blocking is done ahead of time and tech rehearsal and like how you lock it down. Oh, that's fun. Nobody's asked that before. Our cinematographers are great. Um, the cinematographers uh, who uh, set the look um, originally and then the ones we've worked with throughout. And they're, you know, they're lighting it and they're, along with the directors, framing the shots. David and I have a, uh, a very clear visual palette mm. and Neil Berger who directed the pilot episode <clears throat> had a lot to do with it but Dave and I have a very clear visual palette for the show we figured out what it is that we we thought worked on the show and that has to do with um Wait, quick question what do you mean by visual palette just like the colors that no all of it that's yes so what I mean by this sure the color scheme is a real important part of it but but also the kinds of lenses that are used, the kinds of shots that are used, meaning we don't use Steadicam on our show. So part of what makes the, we did use Steadicam a little in the first season, but ever since then it's been used very sparingly in the last three seasons, not at all. And because we want the photography and the staging to seem specific, we want Mm -hmm. the actors to be able to find very specific um, actions and specific places to go. And yeah, when we do blocking rehearsal in the morning, the actors, every day on set, the first thing we do is a blocking rehearsal. We get just the cinematographer, the director, Dave and me, the actors, the assistant director, the script supervisor. That's it. Though That group of people, um, and a creative producer, Mike Mike Harrop, who is like Dave and my eyes and ears on set, we're not there. And we uh, go to where we're going to shoot. The actors kind of find it in the space along with, the director and us, when they find the movements, the staging, we will then talk through how we want to all, sh- how we want to shoot it. The director will have ideas, cinematographer will have ideas. They'll sort of present that. And sometimes that means talking to the actors and saying, hey, what would happen if instead of going here, you went here and here's why? And this, and the director will say, you know, this might be a motivation that would take you to that chair instead of to that couch. And most of the time, the actor will be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I can find that. Or the actor might say, well, here's why I think maybe it would be at the couch, and we'll talk that stuff through. But then once that's blocked, we'll then figure out how to shoot it within the shooting scheme of the show. The shooting scheme for our show involves very direct eye lines. We like having a traditional eye line, so it's over the shoulder with a pretty direct eye line because the dialogue is fanciful and complex, and for the emotional for the emotional sort of coherence, we want you not to have to, sh- to sort of fight through camera angles that are less direct. And so that visual scheme or palette you're picking up on when you're watching, the staging, the lighting, the camera angles, 
you're correct. It's very deliberate and very particular to this story that we're trying to tell in this way. This is one of my favorite questions anyone's ever asked, and I'm glad that this approach is um, obvious to you as you're watching the show. That's amazing. I'm so happy you liked that one. Um, Good pick. I'm glad you picked it. Yeah. <laughs> Another Billions question is, somebody wants to know of all the places that you've shown on Billions, like the different types of foods, if you could only eat at one establishment for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, right. And then I thought I saw Jonathan Prince came over the top and was like, um, how can you possibly pick one if it's not Jennifer and my cooking? Oh, uh, so shout funny. out to my friends, Jonathan and Jennifer, who are great cooks. Um, well, I mean, I love sushi, so I, it's possible I would pick a sushi restaurant. And and I love Anthony Mangieri's Una Pizza Napolitana. I mean, I could live there, even though I'm not eating pizza right now because I'm uh, trying to eat better, more healthily. For me, carbs like that aren't great. I I, I would say Una Pizza Napolitana or um, any of David Chang's restaurants. David Chang is my favorite chef. I mean, I love Danny Meyer's restaurants too. I, the truth is I have too many friends who are chefs to really answer this question <laughs> other than to say, other than all to say, them. and if I've left Alex Guarnaschelli, Butter, I mean, so many, Missy Robbins, all my friends who are so great at, as you know, this is impossible for me to answer. If I'm Ivan Ramen, if I'm leaving you out, Morgan Stern's for ice cream, I feel bad. Uh, <laughs> if we're being honest though, Momofuku Noodle Bar is so important to our family, to the four of us, to mm-hmm. me, you, your brother, and your mother. When David opened that restaurant, Chang, it really is the thing that locked in for me uh, that that restaurants and food mattered in a different way. It made me curious. You know, I always talk on this show about how I'm fueled by curiosity and I try to chase what fascinates me. And that was the moment. The moment that I first went to one of Chang's restaurants is the moment that I became incredibly attuned to this experience of getting to eat out at amazing new stunning places and i think david's continued to grow but there's something about the original restaurant Fuku noodle bar that i think you probably agree whenever we walk into that place it it feels like we're supposed to be there yeah. and um uh and and restaurants are emotional and there's a romantic part of what your favorite restaurant is. And so for me, I think, um, I think Una Pizza Napolitana for similar reasons, uh, and, uh, Mofuku Noodle Bar, those would be uh, the, the two that I would pick. Uh, we're nearing 40 minutes. So should I ask you some final questions? Yeah, let's do just a couple more. Yep. Okay. Most underrated Dick's player of all time. Oh, well, oh, I got to know who asked that question. Um, Billy Brumel. All right, the most underrated Nick, by definition, that's Mark Jackson. Even though Mark Jackson's like a Hall of Famer uh, and an assist leader of all time, I think Mark Jackson is underrated. I think that Knicks were so close to championships, and I think Mark Jackson gave his all every time he was on the floor. I mean, if you're looking for like a really obscure Nick, I could say like Toby Knight, but the truth is, uh, let's stick with Mark Jackson. Next question. Name the last two things you changed your mind about. Whoa, that's not some quick question. Um, 
Okay, one is not making you come home and <laughs> because I decided you're 20 years old. No, like, okay, so parenting, people ask me about this all the time. You're 20, but you still live under my roof. I still support you. You're in college. I pay for college. You're also a very obedient person, meaning even if legally you don't have to listen to me, you would listen to me. And uh, I originally wanted you to come home during this time. But as I thought of, and that was my instinct, because as a parent, I just want you close to me and I want to know you're protected with me. But then I thought about it. You, You rationally said, dad, I think I'm safe where I am because- um, with people, I'm. I don't have to fly to you. Also, New York has far more coronavirus than where I am. I don't want to say exactly where you are and all that stuff. And I thought about it overnight, and I realized, okay, uh, I can't put my own anxiety, my own sort of like need to know. Okay, she's under my roof ahead of what's rationally, logically. The best. We have a lot of friends where you are. There are great doctors where you are if you would need a doctor. Um, you're with very smart people who are thoughtful. You're very smart and thoughtful and careful. You're not irresponsible. And so that's one thing I changed my mind about. And something else that I love that I changed my mind about is the first two years, Fred Armisen was on Saturday Night Live. I thought he was the least funny person in the history really? of Saturday Night Live. And yeah. And then around the third or fourth season, I realized, oh, he's the funniest human being in America. Yeah. So that's something that I changed. That's a great one. Yeah. Um, And then a final question. um, What's your preferred coffee brewing method? Okay. I, I love a French press if I can get it all perfect. Meaning if I can get every element of the French press exactly right. So I have just the right beans that aren't too bitter for French press because French press can sometimes make it more bitter. Um, I've grinded them to the perfect size. That's very challenging. You Almost always they end up too small and then there's too much sediment. Then the water has to be just the right level of uh, hot and then you have to time it exactly to the four minutes. So a perfect French press, but it's so maddening trying to get the French press right that as long as I grind the beans fresh in the morning, I'm happy to have drip coffee now. Coffee? Oh, coffee is good. I'm happy to have drip coffee now. That um, it, it, I love the smell of the beans grinding in the kitchen. So as long as I grind the beans fresh, put new water in, so I'm not leaving the water overnight, uh, and then um, I'm totally happy with drip coffee. And and the real truth of the matter is, I don't like Keurig machines. Yeah, you don't like Nespresso's. No, I don't love. But in a pinch, I'm happy to do it. It's fine. It's Listen, there's no real real bad coffee. I can kind of like <laughs> tell myself if I'm drinking deli coffee, I'm like, well, hey, there's New York tradition. This is deli coffee. <laughs> I'm drinking gourmet coffee. I'm like, oh, look the trouble these people went to. Truth is, I love the taste of coffee. I drink it black and I love the way coffee feels and I love the way that coffee tastes. And the one thing I'll say to you, Anna Rose, is uh, although I did make the right decision allowing you to be far away right now, I would trade all the coffee in the world to be able to give you a hug. Oh, I miss you a lot. All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Compliment. Anna's on there, too. Uh, be nice to her uh, or I will um, uh, chase you down. And um, you can email me the moment, bk at gmail.com. Everybody, thanks for listening. Anna, when I push stop, you can't close your browser because okay. – 
it will upload your part of this recording. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. I will see you next time. Keep sending questions.